Uh, If you will turn to Matthew chapter 7, we begin a new series today that we are calling Context. And uh, we are going to look at some of the uh, more abused passages of the Bible, passages that are ripped from their context, that are taken out of their intended meaning and used for our own personal uh, whatever, aggrandizement, whatever, whatever our personal agenda is. And uh, we, I hope this series will be challenging. I hope it will be uh, edifying. Um, it's, we're probably going to see in a lot of these verses uh, ways that we ourselves have abused, misused, taken passages out of their context. And before we, before we jump in here to Matthew 7, I, I want to kind of set the table for this series. We did that a little bit last week, just kind of impromptu, but there, there's a huge responsibility to get it right when you stand up and teach or preach or even quote the Word of God. There's a huge responsibility. Wayne Grudem is quoted as saying is this regarding the, the immense responsibility that comes with the Word of God and teaching it and quoting it and preaching it. He says, you better get it right because people will believe you. And as teachers, we will have to give an account one day. Many false doctrines, false religions have come about simply, heresies have come about simply because people didn't get it right. For whatever reason, they didn't get it right. Whether it was intentional, whether it was not, they didn't take time. They were maybe fast and loose with the Word of God. They, they didn't do their hard work. And many a destructive heresy, false religions came from not getting it right. Divisions amongst the body of Christ. When, when handled rightly, the Word is a wonderful thing, even even when it hurts. There are times where I open up the Word of God and and it hurts. What I see, I don't see myself. I see what I'm not. I see my sin. The Word of God exposes my sin. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joint and marrow, and to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Many times we open up the Word of God and and it cuts. It does surgery, if you will. Getting rid of sin. Exposing sin. When handled rightly, it it is a good thing. But when misused, it can be deadly. When, When not handled rightly, listen, you can get the Word of God to say just about whatever you want it to say if you're just in it for you, if you're not handling it rightly. And, and, and to illustrate that, this is, a, this is a sort of an extreme illustration, but it illustrates the, how deadly and dangerous the Bible can be when not handled rightly. Adolf Hitler was widely known for taking Jesus' words and using them to support his assault on the Jews. He would go to passages such as where Jesus cleanses the temples, the temple, and he, and he talks about this wicked and adulterous, and all these passages where he was confronting the Jewish leaders. And, and Adolf Hitler took those passages out of context and used them to assault and assassinate the Jews. And he would quote the Word of God to support what he was doing. 
And to do that, all Adolf Hitler had to do was take a text, take a passage out of its context. To, to rip a couple verses out of their context, quote them singularly, instead of leaving them alone in their context and dealing with them as God gave them. He would go to a passage again where, where the Jewish leaders drove, where Jesus drove the Jewish leaders out of the temple, and he would use that to say that he was continuing Jesus' fight against what he called Jewish poison. Huge numbers, millions paid the price. And all Adolf Hitler did was take a verse out of context. Take a passage that was directed at a specific group of people at a specific time, and he used that against an entire different group of people. And I, I, I admit, that is an extreme, it may be as an, an extreme example, but you get the point. When you are fast and loose with the Word of God, when you're not careful, when you come to the Word of God with the wrong, even the wrong motives, bad things happen. When, when the Bible is not handled with care, when, when it is abused for our agenda, when it's abused for, for, to, to, for our lives and our agenda rather than God's agenda, when it's, when, it's, when it's not taken as a means of conforming our lives to what it says, but trying to conform it to what our lives already look like, bad things happen. Even quoting the Bible... If you're not careful and understand what you're saying, even the quoting the Bible can be dangerous. Again, our passage today, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. I mean, if we were to, I guarantee you every single person in here has heard or has said that to shut somebody up. Somebody's in your face, somebody's confronting you with sin, somebody's addressing something, and here's the answer, don't judge. Don't judge. We, we've even used that as an excuse for not dealing with stuff we ought to deal with. Well, you know what, I don't want to judge them. I don't want to judge them, you know. Matthew 7, 1 says, don't judge or else you'll be judged. I don't want to judge them. Is that, is that what he says? I mean, we have, Christians have habitually misquoted the Bible and misunderstood its meaning. And in the wake of that, we leave, we leave confusion, frustration. We leave faulty beliefs about God. We leave behind us faulty beliefs about His people, faulty beliefs about His nature, faulty beliefs about His intentions, all from misquoting the Bible, all from not handling the Bible carefully. Some of us today are, are possibly dealing with bad theology. We're trying to rid ourselves of, of faulty teaching, of, of mistruths in our own lives. That, that I have a Bible study on Thursday mornings, and, and, and there are men there who were, were raised in a specific context, in a specific setting, and constantly they're being confronted with truths in the Bible that, that they were not taught or mistaught. But I thought it said this, but I thought, but, and it, it is harder. Listen, any sports, in relation to sports, anyone will tell you it is harder to retrain bad habits than it is to train good habits to start with. It is harder to correct bad teaching than it is to, to do it right. You know, to, if I'm just dealing with somebody that's just a, a clean slate. All from, all from mishandling the Word of God. False doctrines, false theologies, they come from this place. Not doing your homework. Coming to the Word of God 
with your own presuppositions, coming to the Word of God thinking you know what it says before it says it, coming to the Word of God thinking, you know, having this mindset of this is what I want to find, and guess what you find? You find that you find it. Instead of coming to the Word of God humbly and simply saying, look, I'm going to see what it says, and I'm going to submit my life to what it says. That, that's how we come to the Word of God. We don't come to the Word of God in judgment. We come to the Word of God with a desire to submit our lives to the Word of God. And it must be handled with care and with humility. I, I don't say this for my own sake. I'm just saying every, I am, I, I am a nervous, a, in, in some ways a wreck, every time standing up before you to teach because it is a huge responsibility to open up this Word and says, thus says the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Huge responsibility. And I want, us to, I want us to learn in this series, not just the passages that we're going to look at, but my hope is that it goes deeper, that we learn how to study the Bible. That we learn how to rightly divide the truth through this study. And, and, and that's what I want to do. Look, look, look at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. That's the, that's the culprit here. That's the passage. It's the passage we all know and love. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Okay, so if you just took that thing out, if that's all you read, that's all you read, and you thought you knew what that passage was teaching, if that's all you read, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Because look what it says in verse 2, for in, de- for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. But before we jump in and we, we, we open up the Word of God and see what, what Matthew is teaching here, what, what the Lord is teaching us here through Matthew's writing, I want to set the foundation for this series. And, and you'll see on your handout there's some questions, but, but there's four points. I want to set the context really for this whole series. I, I want to help us to understand when I say context, why I say that, what I mean by that, and and, and, and really set the stage so we'll understand. And so the first thing on your hand out there is, what is context and why it matters? It should say why it matters, not why is matters. Oh, they corrected it. Melissa corrected it for me. What is context and why it matters? That's the first thing. Again, Bible study is a serious endeavor. God, listen, God has communicated to His creation. Think about that. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God has communicated, revealed Himself to His creation. And our task in studying the Word is to understand that communication rightly. I mean, think about it. You have in your hands the very Word of God. The very Word of God. Like God spoke. He revealed Himself. I mean, if we really grasp that, that and that alone, I mean, we would be so careful. This is the Word of God. Think about that. 
He has communicated to us. And in Bible study, we are seeking to understand what God communicated. And as we approach, as we approach Bible study, we've got to keep that in mind. That, that God has communicated in every single verse fits into that overarching communication. Every single verse fits into a greater narrative of what's going on. Every single verse, every single book, every single verse fits in a huge narrative of what God is communicating through this word. That is the context. Every single individual verse is part of something larger that is being communicated, whether it be in one section of a passage, whether it be in one book, or whether it be how that book fits into the narrative of the entire Bible. Every single verse has a context. And that's the first fill-in there. And when studying the Bible, we must remember that every verse appears in a context. Every verse had a reason for being there. Additionally, every single verse, and with that, every single verse has one interpretation. There is one truth that God was communicating. Please hear that. One truth. Our job in Bible study, our effort in Bible study, our endeavor in Bible study is to understand that. The truth that that verse teaches. Our job is to figure out what is that verse teaching when we do that through a right interpretation. Bible study is not us sitting around in a circle reading a verse and saying, well, what does that mean to you? Well, what does that mean to you? Well, what about you? Well, what about you? What about you? That's called a pooling of ignorance. I mean, I'm just being serious. That, that's not Bible study. Well, it means to me this. Well, God told me it means this. Well, God told me it means this. Well, that's interesting because you all contradict each other. So, no, the Bible study is figuring out what did God mean when he wrote this verse? We're seeking truth. We're not seeking opinion. Truth. We're seeking the mind and the heart of God through Bible study. We're not, we're not pooling our opinions. We're not sitting in judgment of what God said. We're not, we're not, we're not the, the interpreter, so to speak. We're, we're trying to understand what he wrote. And we need a right interpretation first. I, 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 hear, that all, I hear it all the time. So many of us are so quick to rush to the application. What, what does this mean for me? What does it mean? Gonna, no, no. We've got to interpret the verse first. You've got to do the hard work of interpreting what that verse actually says first before you can apply it. Does that make sense? There, there's, listen, there's always some application. It could be, it could be an understanding of who God is. It could be something that I need to do. It could be something as simple as an attitude that I need to correct. It could be something that I need to stop doing. The, the application is many. The interpretation is always one. There's one interpretation. Our job in studying the Bible is trying to the best of our ability understand what that one interpretation means. God was not confused. He was not vague. He was very clear in what he wrote. It's our job to try to understand that. And the application, listen, the application flows from first figuring out the truth of the passage. And you, you see that on your handout. Application and times change, but what God inspired through the original author and the intent of the truth of that passage is fixed and eternal. It doesn't change. Well, in this area, it means this. In this area, it means, no, no, no. 
It doesn't change. It's true always. It's fixed. Truth doesn't change. Truth is fixed and it is eternal. And, and the interpretation comes from doing the hard work. And once we do the hard work, then we can start to apply a passage. And you see there on your handout, therefore, because of that, we must understand what the verse actually says in its context when it was written before, before we can apply it accurately. We need to understand what it says. And that is what Bible study is, seeking to understand the verse in its original context so, and what it says, and so then we can apply it to our lives. And that is what I mean when I say context. And you see it on your handout. I, I'm trying in this first section to kind of divide, to, to define some terms, make sure we're operating with the same terms. Context. What is context? Context is the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or an idea in the way that they can be fully understood and assessed. It's the circumstances, it's all the passages that are right around it, even the greater, the greater book as a whole. Context is determined by looking at the parts of something written or spoken immediately prior and immediately after the passage that you're looking at. It would be very dangerous just to plop down in a verse and, and just read one verse and try to think you know what that verse is saying without understanding the context. I mean, and, and so the context, again, it's determined by looking at the parts as a whole. And you think through just what the word context means. The word con means this. It means to deceive or to trick. The word con can also mean to persuade somebody of something. So when you, when you break, think about it, when you break up a text, when you look at a verse apart from a specific text or a body that it belongs to, you can deceive and you can persuade people to believe about whatever they, you want to believe about that one individual verse. You can in some ways, in many ways, make a verse mean about whatever you want. It would be like saying this, that something is bad. Well, does that mean it's good? Because bad can mean awesome, and bad can mean terrible. So you, you need to understand, are you talking about bad awesome? Like that car is bad? Or... Bradley Cooper Basham is bad in school. Which one is it? Hey, your son was bad today. Do you mean he was awesome? Like, are we going to get ice cream? Or do you mean his, he got his thing moved in class? You see, the con, but the con, how would I determine what she means by the word bad? By the context. The context would tell me what the word bad means in that place. And, and to remove a verse from its context is dangerous. That's what I want us to see. It's very dangerous. Taking And listen, taking verses out of their context and getting people to take verses out of their context has been a scheme of Satan since the beginning of time. To get people to question God's word, to get people to question God's truth, what it really says. Turn, turn with me, hold your place there in Matthew 7. Turn with me to Genesis 3. God gave specific commands to Adam with regards to what tree he could and could not eat from. And Adam was to pass those on to his entire family. And Satan here, his attacks are directed 
exactly at the Word of God. There's, some are subtle, some are not subtle, but they are rooted in the Word of God, an attack on what God said. Look at Genesis 1, I mean Genesis 3, 1 through 3. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, you see even the, even the hint, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said, okay, think about it right there. Is that what God said? That's not what God said. God said you can eat from any tree of the garden but one. You see how subtly Satan starts changing the word? Misquotes the word? Brings into question the word? The woman said to the serpent, From the trees, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die again. Is that what God said? That is not what God said. God didn't say nothing about touching. He said don't eat it. So, so from the very beginning of time, look what you see happening. You see, a, you see a misuse, a misquoting of the Word of God. Did God really say? I mean, you see how Satan's trying to get them to question. Is that really what he said? Then, then he misquotes it. God didn't say they couldn't eat from any tree, just the one tree. Eve herself again begins to misquote it. Look at verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. That right there, that is an attack on the character of God. Basically, God's a liar. He's a liar. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the, here's the context. He changes the context. See, God tells them don't eat from it, not from a, not from a sphere of being good, Satan changes the context and says, hey, God gave you that command from a sphere of being jealous that you'll be like him. He's a jealous God in the sense of he's, he's afraid you'll be like him. See, the context, again, it, it, it was an attempt to get God's people to question God's goodness and what God actually said, but it was an attack on God's word. It was an attempt to get people to see God's word in a new light different from that which was originally intended. Dare I say, Satan's attempt and attack is to change the context in which God spoke. Not from a heart of love, from a heart of protection, but from a heart of jealousy and envy. That, hey, they'll be like me, and I can't have anybody being like me. Change the context. Flip over, go back to Matthew, go back to Matthew 7 and flip back to Matthew 4. You'll see the same thing. In Matthew 4, you have the tempt, what's called the, the temptation of Jesus. Then it says, verse, starting in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, Jesus said this, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will, be, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes the Word of God. Tries to get Jesus to do something basing it on the Word of God. 
Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I have given you, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. What is interesting here is that Satan not only knows the word of God, but Satan knows it correct. He can quote it accurately. He quoted it accurately, but in the wrong context. He ripped a verse out that was intended for something else and tried to get Jesus to use it for something in which it was not intended. Satan doesn't misquote Scripture here. He misapplies Scripture here. He tries to get Jesus to test God in his sovereignty by taking a verse that was intended for something else and to use it for his own gain. He was reckless with God's promises. It's like someone who says, hey, God is sovereign. Well, I can just go do whatever I want to do and I can live recklessly and carelessly just, hey, because God is sovereign. Well, here's the deal. Has God numbered our days? Absolutely has. You go lay down in the middle of, in the middle of Gun Highway, just go lay down in the middle of the street. Today's the day he's numbered your days. I'm just telling you. I don't even need to be a prophet. Today is the day. You, you, don't, you don't just say, well, God is sovereign. He'll do whatever he's going to do. No, you're not careless with God's word. We reap what we sow. We saw that in Galatians 6-7. To live carelessly under the banner of God's sovereignty is to abuse the truth of God's sovereignty by putting God to the test. That's what Jesus says. But used rightly, when used rightly, God's word was a source of power. It was a source of wisdom to win the battles in our lives against Satan. That's exactly what Jesus shows us. And, and all of this and more is why we need to know God's word well for ourselves. We need to be students of the word of God. First John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, not everyone who says they're from God is from God. Not everyone who comes to me, I, I'm just going to throw it out there first of all. I do not believe you right off just because you come to me and say, God told me to tell you something. Okay. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. I, I don't, I'm just telling you. That, that's, not the, I don't, that's not a cloak for doing, well, God told me to do this. Okay. Let's line it up with the Word of God. Let's test, let's align it with the Word of God. Let's see. The Bible says very clearly, test the spirits. Not everyone who says they're from God is from God. We need to know the Word of God ourselves so that we can form a baseline to compare every single thing that we see or hear. Everything you hear about the Word of God, everything that people say, everything that's purported, our own, our own president, I, this is not a Democrat-Republican thing, at a funeral misquoted Ezekiel 36. That's all right, he says, that's all right, guys, we're all getting a new heart. That's not what Ezekiel 36 says. That's not the context. Sounded great. Probably offered a lot of false comfort. We need to know the Word of God ourselves so that when we hear it, we can go back to a baseline to say truth or not truth. That, that's why in Acts 17, verse 11, listen to what it says in Acts 17, verse 11 with regards to the Bereans. I, my prayer would be we would be this kind of people. Now these were more noble, talking about the Bereans, noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, 
For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They took what they heard, they went back to the scriptures and examined them to be sure that what they had heard was so. They knew the word. They were students of the word. Why do we need to know the word? Because Satan's scheme has always been to misquote and misuse God's word. Always been to misquote and misuse God's word. So in this series, I want us to understand how to rightly study God's word. And that includes how we approach God's word. You see there on your handout, questions to ask yourself. How do I approach the scriptures? You see on your handout, a couple, couple ways. Do I come trying to justify my own behavior or what I want to do? Do you come to the scriptures looking for them to justify what you're already doing? To back up what you already want to do? If you already have your mind made up, trust me, you go to the scriptures, you'll find something. You can, ruin, you can rip it out of context, you can abuse it, and you can quote it, and it justifies your behavior, if that's what you want. Or do you come truly trying to conform your will to God's will and His Word? Do you come trying to justify yourself or justify your own action? Or do you come humbly saying, Lord, I want to conform by the power of the Spirit my life to your Word, to your will through your Word. That's why I come. Whatever, and whatever it says, I'll do. I, I thought about this. Do you, come, do you come to the Word of God for your gain or God's glory? Do you come for your gain or for God's glory? Not that, again, not that we don't gain, we grow in that. But how do you come to the Scripture? Do you want to glorify God through your life? Or do you just want to know the Word just so you can win the Bible trivia contest? Why do you come to the Word? Do, do you, come, you see it on your handout, some questions to ask yourself. Do you come to the Word waiting to sit in judgment over what you read, thinking, let me see what it says, and then I will determine if I want to obey it or not? Is that how you come to the Word? Let me see what it says first then I'll decide whether I want to obey it. Or do you come saying, Lord, whatever you reveal by your power, do it in me. Do you come humbly? Do, do you come thinking that you already know what it says? When, when, we, when, I, when I stand up here and say, look, we're going to study this passage, do you say, oh, I already know what that says. You got nothing to teach me. I already got that one. Or do you come ready to learn? Humbly. That, that maybe, maybe you've missed a nugget that's there. See, our, our, our approach to the Word will affect what we see in every text. And, and I pray that we will be a people that comes humble, humbly and ready for God to reveal His Word through that passage, no matter the passage. It may be the verse passage you memorized and you have studied it 800 times. Come humbly, ready to learn. And my prayer is that we'd be a people that constantly learn from text. And so with that, with that, with that, I want to jump into this passage, Matthew 7. The second point in your handout, we, we need to answer the, this question. What is the context of this passage? What is the context of this passage? If you see, if your Bible is like mine, everything before this passage and everything after this passage for a while is in red. I guess that means it's more important. No, I'm teasing. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean it's more important. It means that this is in the middle of a conversation. This is in the middle of a greater conversation. And the greater context, think big, the greater context of this passage is this passage lies in the Gospel of Matthew. 
The Gospel of Matthew was written by a Jewish man named Matthew. It presents Jesus to the Jews as the long-awaited King of Israel, the Messiah. It presents what Jesus' kingdom would look like. It is a very Jewish book. If you read Mark, Mark was written to a different audience. Same, same, a lot of the same information, but written to a different audience. You read Luke, written to a different audience. You read, you read John, again, written to a, a, a different audience in that sense. And, and John is very clear what his purpose is at the end of the book. In, in chapter, I think it's 20, 21, 20, 30, and 31 there. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. But Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Mark would be maybe a Roman audience. John, a very vague, a general audience. Maybe Luke, a Gentile-oriented audience. Very different. And he presents Jesus as the Messiah, as their long-awaited uh, king. That's why you'll see as you read the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the word kingdom is mentioned a lot. It's a lot about kingdom. What will the kingdom be like? How do you get into the kingdom? What, 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 what are the inhabitants of the kingdom like? Kingdom is a huge term in the book of Matthew, or the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew uses, because of that, written to a Jewish audience, he uses huge amounts of the Old Testament. Huge amounts. Additionally, in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that Jesus' teaching ministry has a huge em emphasis and that is what we find Jesus doing in Matthew 7. And the immediate, so the immediate context, you say, okay, that's the book as a whole, a brief overview. So, so where is this passage found? Matthew 7 is found in the greater context of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7 comprise this one teaching. If you turn back to chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, he's instructing his disciples here. By the end of it, some people argue that there are more people here than just his disciples, but hey, he's teaching. And this section of scripture, as I said, runs from chapter 5 to chapter 7. And Jesus is teaching here in this section about his kingdom. He's teaching it about his inhabitants. And he's teaching about his character. It is a teaching section. And what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, if you try to summarize it briefly just for our setting here, he really shows, speaks about every single aspect of a believer's life with, in relation to Jesus' kingdom. Here's what the inhabitants of Jesus' kingdom will look like. He's talking about what the inhabitants of his kingdom will look like. And what Jesus does here, you see on your handout, throughout this section is he contrasts his kingdom to that of the Pharisees. He contrasts true righteousness to that of the external righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day. They were a group of people that were, that were totally focused on externals. Everything was about the external. Earning your own righteousness. Everything, it, it really, what they promoted was what is in a lot, it was opposed to Jesus and his kingdom of true righteousness. Look at Matthew 6, you'll see a picture. Matthew 6, 1 through 6, just to kind of sum up. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward when your father is, when, with your Father in heaven. 
When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. You see it. Truly I say to you, they'll have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, he says in verse 5, when you pray, don't do it with these fancy words, and so men will honor you. Do it in private. When you, you know, he goes on, everything was externals. They were externally focused. And you begin to see the contrast. Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy behind everything that the Pharisees did. It was not for God's glory. It wasn't for other people's good. It was for their own good. They felt, listen, they were convinced, the Pharisees, in contrast to the humility that Jesus teaches in, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, they were arrogant, they were, they were haughty, they were convinced of their own superiority, they felt that they were better than everyone else, they, it was all about externals. They thought so much of themselves that they condemned everybody who was not like them. That they set, literally, they set the bar. That's why you see in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is showing what true righteousness looks like. The, the Pharisees, in many regards, had established themselves, self-appointed themselves as judges for everyone else. They were the standard. If your life doesn't measure up to them, you fall short. That was the standard. And Jesus exposes them here. That, that is the context of Jesus' teaching and how it fits into the greater context of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who had essentially become the judges who sought to determine who qualified for God's kingdom and who didn't. They wanted to determine that. They set their own standards, and they themselves were the standard. It was self-attempts to, to earn righteousness. And, and in Luke 16... Verses 14 and 15, Jesus exposes this again. He says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is testable in the sight of God. You see the contrast? He is setting himself up in contrast to the Pharisees. In contrast to a, a love of money and a love of self and a love for the externals, Jesus is saying, no, you're going to do everything because of a love of God and a love of others. And what Jesus is doing here, as you'll see it on your handout, is showing them what the real standard for righteousness is and looks like. True righteousness. True righteousness. And what he's saying is that even the supposed Pharisees didn't measure up. They fell short. And that is the context of Matthew 7. The context of Matthew 7 is Jesus confronting the Pharisees with what true righteousness looks like, their behavior in contrast to Jesus, what true godliness looks like, what a true citizen of the kingdom of God would look like. That's the greater context. The third thing on your handout there, just real quickly, I want to point out a few ways that this verse has, verse has been wrongly understood and applied before we rightly understand it and apply it. And again, you'll see all of these. If you just take verses 1, even verses 1 and 2 out of their context, you can see how you could come up with these false teachings unless 
you keep it in the context. The first one is this. People, and, and there are heresies on this, religions based on this, that there can be no courts of law or law enforcement. That's what people will come to, Rome, to, to, to Matthew 7, 1 and 2 and say, the scriptures teach it. There are theologies that exist that come to these verses and argue against, use these verses to argue against government and police. Because they don't judge. In total contradiction to Romans 13 that says government and rulers and those things are put in place for your good. Total contradiction. Listen to 1 Peter totally contradicting 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Oh, that's 2 Peter, sorry. 1 Peter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God. Total contradiction to other passages. Plucking a verse out of context. Others use this, you see, B, it, to say this, it is wrong to think critically, to be discerning. Again, they go to Matthew 6, 25, that says, take no thought. They're like, well, you, you don't need to be critical thinkers. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, both would contradict that. We are to be critical thinkers. We are to engage our minds. 1 Corinthians 5, 21, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. We are to examine things. We are to be sound thinkers. See there, it is wrong to take a stand morally or doctrinally on issues. Wrong to, hey, I can't, here's what they say. I can't speak to you about those things. That's, that's your business. Funny how in 1 Corinthians, Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, a man sleeping with his mother and with his stepmom, Paul thought it was his business, the man in the church, a supposed Christian, says, hey, he's sleeping with his, his, his stepmom. Paul said, that is my business. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. We saw in Galatians 6, it says, if any of your, 6, 1, if any of your brothers is caught up in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, but do it in gentleness and respect so that you too will not be caught up. The reality is it's a violation of love not to confront a brother and sister who's in sin. I mean, if you saw your loved one about to destroy themselves or, or they're chasing Pokemon and they're about to walk off a cliff, you're going to yell at them. Why? Because you love them. The reality is Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says if, if, if a man who's doing that won't repent and stop it, he says don't even eat with such a one. Don't even eat with them. First John, or, or John, John, 2 John 10 says, If anyone comes to you with a doctrine other than this, he says, don't let them in your house. Don't even let them in your house. We're, we're to take a stand. We're to be critical thinkers, all based on the Word of God. John 7.24, in and of itself, listen to what John 7.24 says. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That, that really is a summation leading into what we see here. The Pharisees judged totally externally, totally based on appearance. It was not righteous judgment. D on your hand out there, the last one. It is wrong to correct errors. Wrong to correct errors. Interesting, in Matthew 18, which we'll get there as well, 
If your brother sins, verse 15, go and show him his fault in private. Listen, and, and this, this passage, please hear me. This passage is so abused on so many levels. If you hear of struggles in this church, if you hear of somebody struggling with something, if they've offended you, if they've done something, please don't come and tell me. Don't do that, please. Not until you've gone to that person individually. And if that didn't work, when you get another person to go to them, the two of you, and confront them, I'm, not, I'm third on the hit list. If you come to me first, I'm going to tell you you're gossiping. I'm just telling you. You're telling something about somebody to me that I should not know. That is gossip. If I sinned and you knew about it, I wouldn't want you telling somebody else. I'd want you to come to me privately. We can deal with it privately. And then it's a one-on-one -on -one issue and it's done. But we are in love. We are to confront people. We, we, that's the loving thing to do. In Galatians 2, we saw it. Peter is being a hypocrite, what did Paul do? Paul went and confronted him to his face because he's being a hypocrite. And, and again, Matthew 7, 1 and 2 is, is wrongly used to keep people at bay to justify their own behavior and what they want to do. That's not at all what he's saying. All of those wrong beliefs came about from a wrong interpretation of Matthew 7 of just taking this one or two verses out of context. That's why we need to be students of the Word and understand the Word rightly. So fourthly, we'll get to the main point here. What was Jesus actually teaching in this passage? So that we, at least us in this room, can make a pact that we will not misinterpret or misabuse or misquote this verse any longer. What was, he actually, what was Jesus actually teaching? Listen, the Pharisees were critical in the wrong ways and with the wrong standards, and with the wrong motives. They held others to a standard that they did not hold themselves to at times. They were judging people's motives. Again, numerous times in the Gospels, Jesus condemns and rebukes the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They looked real good on the outside, but inside they had rotted away. They were dead. Numerous times he, have, he have confronts them with their blatant hypocrisy. We saw that in John 7, 24. They judged externally. They did not judge righteously. They put impossible standards on people that, that they couldn't possibly uphold. And what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 is, is specifically two commands. Number one is this. Stop judging others in a hypocritical way. So stop judging others in a hypocritical way. Secondly, he says this, deal with your own sin first. Deal with your own sin first. What, what he does here in this passage is he says this, you and I are not the standard of righteousness. People do not need to live up to my standards or your standards. We don't set the standards. People don't need to do things the way that I want them done. What Jesus condemns here is not holding your life up to the Word of God or holding others' lives up to the Word of God. What he condemns here is you holding others' life up to your life, of you judging people according to your standards, of a self-righteous pride that says, I'm the standard, or that I get to make the standard. You see on your handout, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees for their self-righteousness and sin in the way they, they judged people, not judging altogether. He's not forbidding judging altogether. 
What, what he says here is directed to the Pharisees to confront them and to teach them. He is warning that the same measure of judgment that they hold others to will be used against them in their own lives. That's what he says in verse 2. In the way that you judge, you will be judged. And that's what he goes on to say in verses 3 through 5. That's the illustration of the speck and the log. He's saying, you've got a plank, you've got a huge log in your eye. And you're trying to get a speck out of someone else's eye? What does he say with? It's interesting. He says, deal with the plank in your eye. Why? So that you can deal with the speck in another person's eye. In the very passage that people quote trying to say, don't judge, Jesus says, no, no, deal with your own sin first so that then you can rightly help other people deal with their sin. Even in verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs. There is a judgment, a righteous judgment going on there saying, you know what, you're a dog. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Verse 6 is about righteous judgment. You're to judge righteously. But see, you're worried, the Pharisees were worried about a speck in someone else's eye, and they weren't dealing with the plank in their own eye. And you see on your handout, that's the issue. Looking at another's sin harder than you look at your own sin. Being more critical of someone else's sin than you are your own sin. That's the issue. Hypocrisy. It's about hypocrisy. Being critical of someone else and their sin in ways that you're not critical of yourself and your own sin. That, that's what he's dealing with here. Holding somebody to a standard that you don't hold to yourself. There are many practical ways that this would fall out. Many. Being something publicly that you're not privately. Being, being an ambassador for modesty over here and looking at pornography over there, that's hypocritical. Coming down, on, coming down on homosexuals or whatever for their sexual morality, all the same time not dealing with your own sexual morality, that's hip hypocritical. Get the plank out of your eye first so you can deal with the speck in someone else's eye. It doesn't mean we don't judge, but we judge righteously according to the Word of God and we deal with our own sin first. And what Jesus is saying is this, the greater judgment comes to the one who overlooks their own sin while pointing out the sin of others. Pointing out other people's sin and not their own sin. Looking harder in other people's lives and their own sin than you are in your own life. That's what he says in, in Matthew 7, 2. Look at verse 7, 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. It's, he's saying you have violated love. It's a violation of the law. That's what we saw in Galatians. And Jesus is confronting the Pharisees in this sense. It makes no sense to approach somebody about their own sin, to be hard on their sin, and to be easy on your own sin. What he's saying here is this. I don't have any right to confront you on your sin if I'm not dealing with my own sin first, especially if I'm committing the same sin that I'm confronting you about. Deal with my sin first. 
someone who is unwilling to address their own sin while they're very quick to address the sins of others to have a higher standard for someone else than you do yourself. That's hypocrisy. That's what he's condemning here. Literally, this passage is about saying one thing and doing another. And in contrast to the Pharisees, Jesus is saying this, my kingdom is marked by believers who live lives of consistency. It's marked by believers who are dealing with their own sin, namely because Jesus dealt with our sin, that lives a life of integrity, a life that says Jesus Christ is the standard, that I cannot earn my righteousness to get into heaven, that Jesus Christ was the righteous one who died. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be son on our behalf, that we would become what? The righteousness of God. This is about righteousness. And we will never be externally righteous enough to get to heaven on our own. We need Jesus' righteousness imputed to us, given to us, grafted to us. And what he's saying is this. Every one of us in this room ought to be more grieved about our own sin than we are the sin of others. We ought to deal with our own sin stronger than we deal with the sin of others. When we sin, we address it, we confess it, and we forsake it. We repent and we forsake it out of reverence for God. What he's saying is only when we are a people who are dealing with our own sin aggressively and rightly and biblically are we able to help others with their own sin. But rest assured, both are needed in the church. What this is saying is not that I have to be perfect in order to help address the sins of another. What it does say is I need to be dealing with my own sin. It doesn't say that I, am, I need to be a man who is looking to Christ for my righteousness, not trying to do it in the flesh, who is, who is aggressively dealing with our own sin. And guess what? Out of the aggression that I use for my own sin, I graciously and humbly come alongside others and deal with their sin. Why? Because I know I got my own sin over here. And I'm dealing with it by the grace of God. And that causes me to come alongside somebody else humbly. Not, I got it all together over here. I don't know what these people are doing. Man, I can't believe you sin. What? That's, that's the Pharisees. We, we, we are a people who rely on Christ and not the flesh. We are a people who say Christ is the standard, not you and I. And the Bible is very clear. Even the reason we gather here, listen, even the reason we gather here is to deal with this. Listen to Hebrews 10, 23-25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us, listen to this, let us, why we are gathered here today, why are we gathered here today, why do we do this every Sunday? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You understand why we're here? To encourage one another, to spur one another on, to, to, to say, hey, you know, you, I know you had a bad week, but come on, remind, God is good. Reminding them of verses to, to, to encourage, to, to, to spur one another on. There's a family issue going on here. It's not just, well, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, you're telling on yourself. We don't only gather just for you. We gather as a family. We gather to spur one and on. We gather to, to sit here and say, you know what? There's a group of 240 people here, whatever it is, that are battling with the same thing that I'm battling with, and, and God gives us the victory. 
that we're battling. It's a group of people who are wounded, who are marred, who are all these things affected by sin, and we're, we're keeping each other's eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. Reminding each other daily, look, there's a day coming where we're not going to battle with all this junk. I'm going to take this tent off, this sinful tent, and I'm going to put on a permanent dwelling. I'm not going to battle with this sin no more. And we have a duty, listen, we have a duty to spur one another on. We have a duty to spur one another on to life and godliness. And it's then and only then can we help, uh, when, we're, when we're pursuing that ourselves, we're able to help others address their own sin. Listen, the church is a group of people who are waging war together on sin. We, we, we got to see each other. We're an army. Together we're fighting an enemy. And we gather to get our marching orders. We gather to sharpen our swords. We gather weekly to, to mend our wounds, to be encouraged. Why? So that we can go back out there and share the gospel rightly. So that our doctrine will be consistent with the word of God. So that we'll be on the same page. So we'll have the same marching orders. What we do here philosophically, listen, what we do here is for the believer. We gather for the believer. Why? So that we can scatter and be effective in reaching the non-believer. We're a group of people who have been created in the image of God and are morally responsible, not only to God, but one another. And we're here to get, we gather to spur one another on, to hang in there, to keep fighting, to not turn back, to be encouraged. That, that's why we gather. I mean, think about this. What if we saw church this way? What if we realized that we need each other? That we need this? We need to be encouraged to look around this room and, and see people we've waited all week to see and they're, they're fighting. They're waging war on their own sin. Just like we're waging war on our sin. Listen, God has judged sin. He has communicated this judgment on sin through His Word. The verdict on sin is in. It is our job simply to communicate God's verdict. When, when I come alongside, or you come along me, and say, look, the Word of God says adultery is wrong, and you say, don't judge me. No, I'm not judging you. The Word of God's already judged you. Adultery, wrong. Stealing, wrong. The list goes on and on. I'm not judging you. Now, I would be in a violation of this verse if I, was, if I had a bank robbing scheme going on. I'm like, you know what? You need to stop stealing. That, that's, that's what he's talking about. Look, God is the judge on sin. And the verdict is in. And, and here, we, we were at the ark this week. And, you know, there's so many, so many, you know, you just see the gospel there. You know, God was patient. God said, Noah, build this ark. And for, for this amount of time, he pleaded with people, get on the ark. Get on the ark. There was a period of time where you could get on that ark. You know, it's interesting, there was one door leading into the ark. One door, one way in. You think about that, the gospel. We live in a day and time today that there is a fixed, we don't know what that time is, there is a fixed Number of days. You know what God is saying? Get in Christ Jesus. Believe upon Christ Jesus. 
Essentially, he's saying, get in the ark. Because guess what? There's coming a day, just like in Noah's day, where he is going to close the door to the ark, and there's a flood coming. Only this time, the flood is not going to be water. It's going to be wrath. It's going to be judgment. And he's going to deal with sin. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not in the ark who is Christ, if you're not in the, the family of God, and the door to that family is Jesus Christ, believing upon Jesus Christ, you're going to perish and spend eternity in hell. To tell somebody that is not judging. It's loving. Noah wasn't judging when he said, look, there's a flood coming. Get on the ark. Don't judge me. Okay. There's a flood coming. And Jesus himself in Matthew compares the judgment that is coming to Noah in his day and the ark and the flood. And God alone, listen, what the Pharisees were guilty of, of take, they were guilty of taking the role of God. They were trying to be God. God alone has the divine right to a judge and establish standards. And he has done that in his word. And our, our role is to communicate that to a world. To say that, look, you fall short. You're a sinner. You fall short of God's standards. Not my standards, God's standards. Listen, James 4.12. There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We don't come up with the standards. We don't get to play God by coming up with our own standards. Our job is to relay God's standards, and we all fall short. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of that, Romans 6.23 says this, is death. God has said from the very beginning, sin brings death. Why did all those animals die in Israel? Why were they all sacrificed? Why? Because sin brings death. John the Baptist said this, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. God, in His great love and mercy, sent an unblemished sacrifice, His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die. Romans 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, it is impossible to forgive sins. There, there's a standard, and it's Christ. We don't measure up. God, in His great grace, has offered the exchange of our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. That's the gospel. And then we as a people in love, not only of our great God, but of others, we go out and tell people about the standard, and that they don't measure up. But there was one who measured up, and his name is Jesus. And he was the door to the ark. He's the door. He's the way. He's the good shepherd. He's the gate. All those are pictures of Christ. And when we approach this passage rightly, we see what Jesus is saying here is so opposite, so opposite to how we abuse it. He was condemning hypocrisy. He was rebuking the Pharisees for their hypocrisy who were quick to judge others in their sin but were blind and even unwilling to hold themselves accountable to their own sin. He was not forbidding all moral judgments. He was not forbidding accountability. What he forbids here is a public, harsh, prideful, hypocritical stance towards others and their sin. To, to quote this passage as a means of avoiding accountability is wrong. We have, been we have been commissioned as a church to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
to those outside the church. That's the truth that salvation is found in no one other than Jesus Christ. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's the standard. Jesus is the standard. Again, Matthew 5.20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and they were the elite of the elite publicly, you will not enter the kingdom of God. We need Jesus' righteousness. And I would beg us as a people to be a people that proclaim that no matter the cost. You know, I'm sure we sat around up there and I thought, for the, you know, talking. I'm sure, I can't imagine what Noah went through all those years building that ark. You imagine he was ridiculed? You imagine his message was popular? You imagine he was received well? He's building an ark in the middle of the desert. I mean, I, I don't know of any account in there that it even rained in that sense before. Like, hey, we're going to build an ark. What's an ark? Hey, it's going to rain. It's going to flood. What's a flood? And yet day after day he was faithful. Get on the ark. Get on the ark. And at the end of the day, eight people got on the ark, his, old, his family. We have a message that is not popular today. We're essentially saying the same thing. Get in Christ. Will we be ridiculed? Probably. Jesus said it's going to come. We saw that last week. Will it be a popular message? No, the Bible itself says it's foolishness to the world. But to those who are, to those who are believing, it's a gift of life. I, I pray that we would be a people who are harder on our sin than we are on others. That when we come along the world and non-believers, they'd see in us that we're, we're not perfect and we're not coming to them with a self-righteous attitude. We're coming to them as a beggar, coming alongside another beggar, telling them where to find food. That we're a people that are dealing with our own sin with more fervor than we're expecting, than we're dealing with their own sin. That's when the world would take notice. 